As we continue our series through it, we have been uh, chugging through this book that James, the, the younger brother of Jesus, wrote. This is what we've said, probably the first New Testament piece of literature that was written, and it was early days. We've called this, it's, it's a very much an Old Testament feeling, New Testament book. Though he is a New Testament little a apostle or a epistle writer, still the, the whole book uh, feels like it's, it's, it's picked straight up out of the Old Testament. This is, this is old Uncle James who doesn't pull a punch. He often sounds like, a, uh, like an Old Testament angry prophet who has come to, to, to denounce woe upon those disobedient and uh, blessings upon the righteous. But James gives us these tremendous encouragements, these strong exhortations. And what we seen so far, just really picking up its, his theological, his, his, uh, his argument at the end of chapter 2 there last week, was that we, we saw that he, he believes, just like Paul, he believes that true, saving, God-given faith that comes out of a newly regenerated heart, which God works in his elect, that faith hears and believes and obeys the word of God, the word of truth. Starting with the gospel, we, be, we hear, we believe and are saved, and then we obey the word of God in its entirety. That, that, is, that is why faith and works go together, because you can't have works without faith. You can't be obeying that which you don't hear and believe to be good and God-breathed, so that our faith is hearing and believing, but it does not stop there. It is always an active, obedient faith. He said that last year, uh, last last chapter, and the, to, to close out chapter two, but this week, he brings us to that, that part of your life, even we can say that part of your body, which is the most honest about whether or not faith is producing works in your life. I want you to imagine that, um, that uh, your, your, your family, maybe, or maybe your workplace, but let's go family, was, was uh, written a letter, and you were going to have a royal visitation to your humble abode down in, down in Meadowbrook or up in uh, Shaler Park, somewhere really classy. The, the queen is going to come and visit you, and so obviously what you do, you, mums, you do this, whether it's the queen or some distant auntie that you don't know, you yell at everybody to go and vacuum and put things away and tidy up, and everything's perfect. You get everything into order. It's not really an honest snapshot of your house, but you want to look good, and then as the queen comes in, picture this, your teenage boy is still, I don't know, laying on his bed, smoking durries, surrounded by cans, in a total mess, something like that. That, that. that picture right there, that young boy on his bed, that's your tongue in the Christian life when you try to give off a good show of sanctification. Your tongue is that honest true image of what you're really like. Or we could say your tongue is like, uh, it's like if, you, if you're going for a loan, okay? We've got some millennials in, in the room and you're trying to apply for a loan and you're complaining about the interest rates and the ridiculous, you know, state of the banks and property and all of that, but you're applying for a loan and, and for months you've been careful with all of your spendings and you've given them all of the right paperwork and as everything looks in order, your tongue and your Christian life is like the bill that they keep on finding to Uber Eats in your bank account. So everything is in such good order, but you spent $4,000 in two weeks on Uber Eats. And, and, and that's the one thing you, you just can't shake. Some of you are looking like that's just far too much. You haven't been at uni yet. Okay, you haven't lived outside of home where mum cooks for you yet. You, you'll spend that much. Or maybe your life is, is, is more like a, uh, 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 let, let's take a, a work site. 
Maybe you're a boss, or maybe the boss man is coming, right? But you're sort of the, you're, you're looking after the apprentices and after the other workers and laborers, and it's your job. You know, the, the investor maybe or the foreman's going to come and have a look at the work site. You get everybody into order, everything's swept away. But your tongue is like the apprentice over here that's trying to hammer in a screw with a spanner. There's still a very honest look of everything else was able to look good for a moment, but that's embarrassingly dumb. Or, or maybe we could say this. Your life is like, your spiritual Christian life, boasting of good works, is like you telling everybody how you've lost 20 kilos. You know, you've cut off the hungry jacks, you're not touching sugar anymore, you're doing keto, ape man, whatever the latest diet is, and and you're saying how much you've lost, but the tongue in your life is like those little flimsy plastic chairs that your Asian mate has out on his patio, and you sit on it. And one leg just bows, bends, and it goes into slow motion as your legs hit the roof, your snag goes over your shoulder, and obliterates into a thousand pieces. That's your life, and that's your tongue. You make boasts of great things, and though you try and look like you're pretty righteous, your, your tongue is that one little section of your life that is very, very honest. It's, it's not going along with the show. It's hard to bring along. In fact, it's the last, hardest, most difficult thing to get in line. It's the most difficult part of your life and practice to get to reflect your spiritual life. Maybe not so much these days. We have those radar guns for your head or your arm or the thing you shove in your ear. But old days, or at least if they do still do it sometimes, when they're trying to take your temperature... Where do they shove that thermometer? Don't, don't think the gross one. Think the slightly less un- annoying one. The, they, they shove it under your tongue. Because your skin can lie. You can say you feel cold. Now, 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 don't take from that that when they're taking your temperature, they ask your tongue to tell you your temperature. They don't do that because words can lie. Tongues can formulate lies and inaccuracies. What they do is they put the thermometer under your tongue because your tongue, you might not know this, but it's just so heavily vascularized, has so much blood flow there that it is always an accurate representation of your physical core temperature. And so it is in James's mindset, even in Jesus' mindset. If you want to take the spiritual core temperature of somebody, you don't have to go far past the tongue. Stick a temperature, stick the word of God, stick some fellowship time right into somebody's tongue life, if you'll allow the analogy, and you will note their true spiritual core temperature very quickly. Jesus himself says this, this reality that you can't get past or you can't get away from how disastrously bad your tongue is at sanctification. It's just the honest part. You can't get away from it. The tongue is so engaged with It is fixed in ratio with your heart. So Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your tongue just bubbles out whatever is overflowing from your heart. The good person, Jesus says, out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, this is the scary part. I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give account for every careless word they speak. Every word typed, every word thrown off at the spouse leaving the room, every every word thrown off to the child or spoken in haste to somebody at church, every careless word will be hung in the balance. And Jesus even says this, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
Now, we just went through two weeks ago, James chapter 2, where you are not justified by a lonely, unworking faith. You're justified by a working, true, saving faith. Therefore, we're not worried now when we hear Jesus say, after we've just sung a song, we're justified by faith alone, and then Jesus says, you're justified by the words you speak. We're okay with that. We've done the theological hurdle jumping and, and hoop leaping. We know what he means. He means that you claiming to have a saving faith, that claim will be justified on the day of judgment. Maybe we think of that day of judgment, and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I don't think anybody does, but maybe, maybe God simply says, you can come into heaven if you have accepted my son as your sacrifice. Have you done that? And those who say, yes, will be led in. Of course, they're the, they're the sheep. Or... Or maybe God says, don't tell me if you accepted my son as a sacrifice. Simply show to me the transcript of your words throughout your entire life since you were saved. And we think that they're two different questions. But in Jesus' mind, in the way that James speaks about justifying our faith that justifies us, they're the same question. Did you believe in Jesus? Yes, then your words will show it. And so we come now to this passage in James chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way through to verse 12. And you can see why commentators say about this text is it's hard to preach on. I'll still try and do it, but it's hard to preach on because it doesn't leave much room for the preacher. It pretty much says everything there is to say, and you can hear James' fiery words coming out of his mouth. He says this, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide the whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire cycle of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither. Can a salt pond yield fresh water? May God bless his own inerrant word in our midst this evening. Well, you can see that James does all the application that we really need tonight as he so clearly paints out the, the difficulty of controlling the tongue, 
The effects if the tongue is not controlled and, and the, the double-tongued, forked-tongued, serpentine nature that the tongue is even among the undisciplined saints of God. Look down at, uh, at verse 1. It actually starts out in his warning. It seems as if, verse 1 would, would, would suggest that in these Jews who had all spread away from Jerusalem as the persecution built on the Israel church, as they spread more among the, the Syrian and more Gentile lands to sort of escape that persecution, as they kept going, that, that Jewish, Jewish pride stayed with them. They'd grown up in the synagogues and they knew what it was to respect a rabbi. Like Jesus was a respected teacher and the apostles are all respected teachers and we grew up in rabbi school always respecting the teacher. And, and so in their lifeblood was the, the desire, the ambition, maybe not like the Romans or the Gentiles who, who want the military fame, who want something of force and, and pomp. The Jews wanted, wanted that teaching ambition and that's still alive and well today. And it seems that with the, the exhortation that this is sort of put in as the introduction to brothers, let not many be teachers, as if he's speaking not to the elders, but to those who are in ambition, striving, desiring, that they would think, I'm not much of a follower, more of a leader. I don't, I don't listen so well, so I feel like God's probably just calling me to talk. That seems appropriate. I'm more impressive just naturally. I'm a, I'm a better, cooler, more impressive lad than the other guys and gals in this little mess. Probably God wants me to be a pastor. Or not a pastor, that connotes pastoral care. And, te- uh, and, and that's sort of, I just want a teaching. Just raise platform, big shiny lights, camera on me. I know I'm, I'm speaking dangerously now like James because I'm in that spot. But yeah, that's the sin that, that he's warning against. Don't let ambition... And especially ambition that is weaponized by the use of the sharp, slandering, pompous, boasting tongue. Don't let that fuel your desire for ministry. The desire for ministry is because souls are being lost. The gospel of Jesus is true. It is their only balm. And the kingdom of God needs building. And you specifically have been called by God, gifted by God shaped by God to be a pastor over his people. There's the call. And yet these men were simply preferring to use their tongue as maybe a way to make money, a way to float to the top of Christian society. (coughs) So he warns them, don't let many of you become teachers with that warning there that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The the job of the pastor has, has these two elements. It's now and it's then. We think of this day where we teach and every word that comes out of the mouth of the pastor this day in counseling rooms, in children's study, in women's study, in Bible studies, in pulpits. Every word has this day, how it will benefit you now, thought about. And it also has to be weighed up with how it will sound being read back to us in the presence of God's mighty judgment throne. The judgment is stricter for those who teach. The tongue, of course, not just for the pastor or the elder, but of course for everybody, is, as we've said, the most difficult part of your body, the most difficult part of your spiritual life to bring under your submission. So that verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. Every person has a variety of ways in which we sin and stumble and fall. And kind of in behind that is, but we all also perfect our stumbling in many ways. We are all stumbling in many different ways, but but one thing that's common to us all 
And one thing that, though you are quite sanctified, is the last thing for everybody to grow in is your tongue. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If you can get your tongue down pat, like if, if you are thinking there's a day in your future where you'll be able to rest your head on your pillow and say, finally, a day that after prayer and spiritual searching and even thinking back over my conversations today, I said nothing that was not perfectly timed, needed, loving, careful, upbuilding, cutting only when necessary. God, I've honored you perfectly with this tiny organ in my mouth today. The day that you pray like that, in all honesty, and God amens your prayer with, well done, good and faithful servant, you're already dead. You're in heaven the day you can say that. Jesus has already come back by that time. We never get there. Though we strive, we absolutely strive, and yet James says, the guy who's there, the woman who's ticking that box in earnest, is the perfect person. Only Jesus has landed that plane. But he's, he's going to say, we all keep on struggling. Look at verse 3. And he starts using these nature metaphors. Uh, pretty much all of them are pulled almost in the exact order right out of Hebrew wisdom literature of his day. The Jews of his world would use these three as, as common uh, imageries. He says, think of, the, think of the horse, this beast of burden, this thing that can drag weight, that can run fast, that can kick you in the chest and cave in your bones. This beast is able to be controlled, though at high pace, by a smaller, weaker, slower animal, mankind, if you control, not, not, not wrap its whole body in ropes, not, not put chain on every limb, not, not hook it up with cogs and wheels and all that sort of thing, but simply, if you put a bit into that horse's mouth, you are able to make it obey you. I've never broken down a horse, of course. Uh, I've never done all of that. I've never mustered a, uh, a, a wild horse like that. But of course, you can imagine the difficulty wrapped up in that kind of job, the, the strength that would have to be mustered if it was your strength versus horse's strength. Of course, James wants us to realize that if we are thinking, if we are thinking of, of everything our words do and say, everything our tongue has the ability to perfect, if you just think that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrangle my whole life and, 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 and control everything, all of the things I've said in the past, I'm going to try and undo it all, we, we start piling, the, the job, the task becomes far too large. It's, it's truly impossible to let your tongue run wild and then manage the rest of it. Just like it would be impossible to break a horse while its mouth is unbridled. Rather, bridle the tongue, and 95% of your work is done for you. In fact, not only that, but it's able to have this positive outlook. If you can control your tongue, if you were to focus much of your prayer and sanctification, and maybe questions to other Christians, how, how am I doing with my words this week? Have I said much this month? Maybe, maybe you just need to do that, is ask honest questions of your trusted, wiser brothers and sisters. If we focus energy there, it is a matter of efficiency and proficiency at the task that our sanctification will take great bounds. He says again, look at verse 4. Look at the ships. Though they're so large and driven by such strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
If you were to be maybe just taken up to a shipyard and, and a dismantled ship had, had uh, just been sort of all of its parts and its engineer, engineering and all of those bits were all laid out on this vast working field in the, in the boatyard, in the, in the shipyard, and you were to be shown multiple parts. And they said, you get to choose one element of this vast machinery that you get to control, and by it, you will control the ship. Which one do you think you would leap at and say, this bit right here is the part that I would want to control to control the ship? Don't you think you would first go to the enormous, the, the, the gigantic engine of that ship, which is able to slow and speed up and, and push that ship through large waves? Don't you think that that, in, that enormous engine would be the, the thing you would immediately think is, if I control that, I control the lot? You wouldn't immediately jump to the, the tiny little, comparatively speaking, tiny little rudder sitting down on the corner that looks like a little cute dolphin fin. And yet it's that thing. And, and James is doing a size comparison here. He's thinking, think how large the boat is and how small that piece is. And yet, being pragmatic here, if you want to control that, it is not so much the engine, but the rudder that will take you where you need to go. It is able, this tiny little thing is able to best the winds and the waves. This tiny little thing is able to move about this, this megaton beast of a, of, a, of a building out on the water. This ship is controlled by the will of a man through a tiny, flat thing we call a rudder. So I want you to think, how much power might you be able to wield for the kingdom of Christ if you realized what a powerful weapon is in the, behind the, the, the gates of your teeth, how much would you actually be able to, to do good for other people? See, people all around you built up, encouraged, going forwards in, in kingdom work and, and feeling more of the hope of the gospel if you were just able to, with your will, focus your effort on your tongue and use it in such a way that your whole life became a a, a, a blessing to other people. It's a, it's a positive thing, James wants us to realize. It's like being able to control a horse. You can make it obey you. It's like a, a rudder in a, in a ship. You are able to make it obey your will. It is a good and powerful thing to focus your effort onto your tongue. What you do say and what you don't say. There's been sins that each of us has committed just this week of things we said that we ought not to have said. There are things this week that we said that we should have said in a different manner. There are things that we should have said and we did say them, but we said them to the wrong person. Well, there are things that we should have said that we went without saying, or maybe even we just said three quarters of it or half of it, or we missed out just a word because it softened the blow and it didn't really communicate what we needed to communicate. The tongue, if, if wielded rightly, is something so powerful in the life of a Christian. So he says that, and therefore verse 5, I think this is a positive spin. Verse 5, so also likewise the tongue. So also the tongue. It's a small member. It's a tiny little muscle that you only see parts of when someone's rude enough to, point, to poke it out at you. It's tiny, it would seem. Not the largest muscle on a, on a grown man's frame, and yet it boasts of great things. 
In other words, it can do mighty things. It can have mighty effects. It has tremendous effects on a life when controlled. But now we're going to start looking, as James points us, towards the negative uselessness. We've seen the positive usefulness, but the negative uselessness of an untamed tongue, the peril, the torment, the terror that comes about in a life of a person, Christian, with an untamed tongue. He says there, halfway through verse 5, how great of a forest may be set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is that fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. In Australia, even on the, the eastern seaboard especially, we have, and in recent years, seen the destructive power of a flame let to burn in our bushlands. How many thousands of homes were destroyed even in recent years? How, how much the people, even of James's day, would see that, that flame is this mysterious, powerful thing that cannot be stopped, where they didn't have running water, they didn't have a fire department on triple zero. When a flame got loose in a city, it would take the whole thing out. Even, even Nero, in just a few years from James's writing, will see the entirety of Rome's city burned to a crisp. And often it can be that it was started simply by a Licked cigarette, a tiny little spark, a, a piece of glass left out in the bushlands after somebody was hiking and it so focused the light onto a slightly too dry leaf and it started a tiny little ember picked up by just a little bit of wind and destroyed national parklands and homes and entire states. Flame has that destructive ability and the tongue likewise, you, we may think it's, it's just going to say one little word Maybe even just one word in a certain tone. Maybe it's just one text. Maybe one post or comment or, or one thing that we say can just be like a spark. But James is removing from us any excuses about the damage that our tongue has caused because of the all too common excuse we use are, oh, all I said was dot, dot, dot. There's no excuse. It's like a, like a boy playing in a petrol station, being, being then charged later with arson. He says, all I had was one little zipper. You're going to blame me for the entire southern uh, uh, part of the city being exploded? That just seems a little bit unfair. Friends, we need to know the tongue that is in your mouth, the words that it can uh, proclaim and put out, carry with it, Proverbs say, the power of life and death. Nothing weird, nothing spiritual, nothing word of faith here that you can create realities, but you can destroy realities. You can bring up people's mindsets, perceptions, feelings, emotions with a tongue. The tongue is able to do this. It is able to set on fire an entire world. It's because of this. We, we might think of a tongue and start thinking of the sin about the tongue, and we might think of two or three, maybe lying and insults, but there's a whole array, a whole spectrum of light, a whole uh, range of hotness that can come from the tongue. We see it can lie, it can misrepresent truth, it can give partial truths, it gossips, it slanders, it blames people, it outright insults people, it backhand insults people, it makes excuses about sin, it complains about what God does or doesn't give or what other people do or don't do, it flirts, it gives false promises, and in fact, against God, it blasphemes. The tongue is able to destroy. 
Think maybe even just of, of how, many, how many miniature gang warfares throughout the entirety li- entire life of humanity, how many, how many tribal wars or maybe downtown urban gang fights and warfare and which, which brings blood to be spilt. How many of those happened because one person was just a little bit uncareful with their tongue, just spoke in such a way to the wrong person or the wrong person's mum? And mothers lose their children in gang fight. How many politicians being uncareful with their words have brought about the destruction of lives of a whole slew of young men in their armies because wars were started because the tongue was not controlled? Through the millennia that humanity has been living, this is the reality. Or maybe even think of your life. How many relationships in the past with church friends, with Christians or non-Christians, people you had the hope of evangelizing to, people you worked with, and the bridge between you is, is burnt and left in ashes, dropping into the river beneath because you were uncareful, un, unthinking, undiscerning of how you used your words. Or maybe even you can think of yourself just on the other side. I think we'll just allow ourselves a few seconds to be the victim here. I don't think James lets us do that often. You're always the person that needs to repent when you're talking to Pastor James. But just for a moment, think of your own life. How, how often, and, and maybe not often at all, but, but, but how, how often have you realized that something you're doing about the way you're living, maybe fashion, the way you keep on trying to dress, or, or the way you get your hair cut, something weird like that, or, or the way that you do your chores, or the way that you make your food, or, or the way that you've chosen entire careers to pursue, or the way that you parent, or, or the way that you think about your own body image, or the way that you work out, or, or whatever it is, the way that you do that, you realize has been shaped by something that your parents said to you decades ago. Or maybe not your parents, maybe, maybe a careless teacher saying something to you that, that hits such a, a resonating spot in such a vulnerable part of your brain or heart that it has stuck with you. It's shaped you. It's continually been there changing who you want to be, what you are able to do. Or, or maybe, maybe it's, it's much more than just one or two here. Maybe you live now under the, the oppressive, repetitive echoing of a voice from your past, religious, family, educational, whatever it be. And you need to realize that that is the power of words. It can stick with somebody. It's not as if we say something and, and once the, the sound waves fall to the ground, it's dead words. Words have a way that once they've stuck through the ear into one person's brain and settles in their heart, it has a way of sticking for good and echoing and being played on repeat throughout their life. And this is why James will say that it is a small spark that can set fire to the whole forest of our life, a world of unrighteousness, the tongue among our members staining the whole body, the entire course of life set on fire, and itself, look at the end of verse 6, and itself set on fire by hell. The way that, that the devil and his forces and his, his kingdom has influenced so much in the Christian church, sometimes it's through false teaching and, and all of those various ways that he attacks, but so often it's simply because he has a direct line to the, to the Christian's tongue. The, the untamed tongue of a saint is the Trojan horse for the devil into the church so that your accusations are echoing the devil's. So that your claims and your lies and your slanders and your murderous hatred, all these things the scripture says are demonic and satanic from the beginning. 
The tongue is able to do that. Carry the demonic forces and their attacks into the life of the church. And, and we're quick to notice, like a Trojan horse, you wouldn't let the Trojan horse in if it was, if it was painted like a, like a demon, if it had, a, had all the weapons sticking on the outside. The, the point of a Trojan horse, like your tongue, is, is that it's not always immediately noticeable as sin. And so we're quick to notice, maybe if a guy's up the back swearing his head off, Maybe the sailor comes in, he's been recently converted, and we're not comfortable with the kind of language he uses, and that, that's all right. We're, we might be quick to notice that sort of thing, but slow to notice. Maybe the lady who, who just has cutting, razor-like words for her husband. Or maybe, maybe, maybe the guy who, who really, he just likes being honest, and you don't hate honesty, do you? And do you hate the truth? Are you weak like that? Because I'm just going to be honest, but he'll say things that are nobody's business, and especially not his, to share. Or, or it'll be something uh, along the lines of, of buttering you up or giving to you a, a, a flattery and, and giving good things and then because he said that to you or she said that to you and how thankful she is for you, etc., etc., she you won't say anything when they slip in slander of another saint or, or, or a groundless, baseless concern about somebody that isn't in the room. We're quick to notice people who aren't nice we're not very quick to notice people who aren't Christ-like in the Christian church. We're quick to notice people who aren't nice, but we're not very quick to notice people who actually aren't Christ-like, though they appear nice. So we need to be good at not just controlling our own tongues, but keeping also out an eye on those ways that other people's tongues are, are being used as this fire against us less. Like a, like a dry bustle of leaves, you be that source by which the fire is passed on to another. So we've seen that the, the tongue is, is, is wonderfully, masterfully useful. If you can wrangle it into your submission, you can do great use with it like a horse or like a ship's rudder. We've seen the destructive nature of it. In fact, that he, he's given us this, this snake-like picture of the tongue that sets everything on fire. And in fact, in verse 8, he, 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 he ends with this. He says, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is like a snake behind your teeth. And then lastly, we'll just see the, the dual-natured uh, uh, element of the tongue. As he's just finished verse 8, saying that, saying that the tongue is full of deadly poison, like a snake, he's going to take that metaphor deeper, I think, and start saying how, like a snake's tongue, your tongue is so often forked. It goes in two directions. It's, it's trying to play the servant to two different masters. It's trying to do two different opposing Things. James hates dual-natured things. James hates the doubleness of Christians. Back in verse chapter 1, sorry, he spoke about the Christian under trial who is double-minded, trusting God one day, running to worldly solutions the next. He hates double-mindedness. He hates, as he'll say in chapter 4, double loyalties. Those who love God and seek to serve God and love the world and seek to win the love of the world. And he's just going to call that whoring. He hates doubleness. And of course now, uh, sorry, back in chapter two, he hated the mindset of the Christian that wanted to play faith and yet disobey. And now he hates the double tongue, the, double, the, the forked nature of the tongue. And so he says, look at verse nine through 11. He says, with this tongue, on one side it forks to one direction to bless 
our Lord and Father. And yet, in the other direction, it curses those who are made in his image. Verse 10. From that same mouth come blessing and cursing brothers that should not be. It is both inconsistent with a good nature and it is hypocritical. Because while, while the tongue is on this side cursing, it is also on the other side boasting of its righteousness. That's why it will bless God. That's why it thinks it has the right and the relationship with God to do that. Boast of righteousness, bless God, curse others. And yet he says there in verse 11, he comes back to imagery as James loves to do. He loves using these, these elements of imagery. He says in verse 11, does a spring, now, we don't get this because we have running water and praise God for that, but in maybe a desert or maybe somewhere on a long road on the side of the highway, a, a spring, somewhere where, where the, the underground water tables are bringing forth the water beneath and it's like a free fountain in the middle of the desert. Does a spring like that pour out of the same opening both fresh water and salt water. Now, even as he asks that, you, you sort of start wondering if, he's a, if, if he has any idea about biology or, or water metrics or anything like that, because that doesn't make sense. It's, it's unable to do both. You know how it works with mixing. If it's bringing both fresh and salty water, it's only putting out salty water. The moment they mix, it's actually a, a new mixture, a, a new ratio, but still not helpful for those who are thirsty walking along in the desert. And I think what he wants us to see here is that the tongue that is forked is not really two tongues. It's just a serpent's tongue. It's not as if it is actually truly blessing God sometimes, and though it is often also cursing their brothers, it is that it is a hypocritical, inconsistent, judged, condemned tongue. And it is that where he is sticking the temperature, the, the thermometer, to gauge your true spiritual temperature. How do you use your words? If you are claiming that most of the time, at least part of the time, maybe a small fraction of the time, but God's okay, he only wants one-tenth of money, one-seventh of my days, and he can have one one-hundredth of my words. If, if we think that way, and, and I give a little bit of that fresh water to God, and yes, the, the rest is all salty and bitter, we need to realize that being mixed, coming out of that same gaping hole in your face, it's not coming out fresh and salt, but altogether polluted. Not good for either party. He says it's inconsistent, it's hypocritical, and it is, in fact, a matter of nature. Look at verse 12. As James, Jesus' younger brother, picks up on the same theme that Jesus spoke all those years ago in Matthew 12. James says, can a fig tree, my brothers, right, think along with me here, really simple, can a fig tree bear Olives, I want us to answer that just to make sure we're all on the same page. Can a fig tree pop out olives? You guys are tremendous. You are botanists. All right, but round two, just in case anyone missed that chance, I didn't hear your answer. Can a grapevine produce figs? No. And so also, can a salt pond yield fresh water? No, three resounding no's. And then the answer also has to come, can an unrighteous, God-hating, sin-infused heart bring about loving, blessing words to both man and God? No. A life that is marked by that, 
words that are cussing, that are cursing, that are hating, destroying, cutting down like razors and setting on fire the, the, on, like a flame, a heart, a life that is characterized by that is not a Christian's heart. As much as we have said that the tongue is hard to tame and hard to bring into control and hard to bring into submission, as much as that is true, praise God who delivers us from this body of death. The Holy Spirit comes and, 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 and over and above what we are able to do naturally, He does actually. He does really. He does truly bring about in the Christian the ability to control your tongue. Not Perfectly, for that he has already said will never happen. But truly, noticeably, really, tangibly, your words will start manifesting the nature within you. And therefore, the reality has to be asked, not simply behavior modification tonight. As if you've come in and we have a, have a great TED talk by a massive hypocrite who keeps on saying the more you talk, the more you'll sin it. He just keeps on talking every week. And I'll keep on doing it till Jesus comes home, comes, comes here or takes me home. Don't pray for that, please. But, but, but you haven't just come in for some TED Talk. Here's how to think about how you use your words and uh, be, a, be a complimentative parent, not a, not a disciplining parent, and think this way. We're not doing that. We're not here for good advice when what this Bible is full of is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not simply be better, do better. God will, God will judge you better. God will give you more rewards and, and you'll tip the scales in your favor. It is repent of that sinfulness. Bring that tongue of yours Picture yourself slicing it out, throwing it on the altar and confessing to God that you have nothing good to bring, that you are unrighteous and your tongue has proven it, that your heart is wicked to the core and your tongue has proven it. And the only boast, the only thing, the only salvation that you can rest on is the bloodletting sacrifice of the Lord Jesus who took the punishment your tongue and the rest of your body deserved who took the wrath of God that you had earned and then gives to you his righteousness so that with a new nature, cleansed, clean now, regenerated, forgiven, now you live a life where pouring out of this new heart is good works, good words, good speech, a good life to the glory of our saving God. So repent and believe if you're not a Christian tonight. Repent and believe in the soul-saving news of Jesus that he has done everything that is necessary and it is up to you only to rest on that. Can you bow your head with me? I'm going to pray over us before we sing our final song to the good Lord. Father, it is because your word says it that we believe it, that sinners like us can be saved, that wretches who have, who have pushed against your law, who have lived against your commandments, who have hated everything about you and have shown that with the way that we speak to our children, our parents, our brothers and sisters. Lord, none of us would be able to think back on our past for very long before finding something that we have screamed or that we have whispered that makes us truly and fully ashamed of who we are. Father God, every single one of us, if we were, if we were nothing but a tongue, if every other part of our body, and Lord, in fact, if every other command was, was put to the side, if we were just judged of what we said and the things that we have uttered, Lord, we would be burning in the hottest of hells for eternity. We need no other body part to sin to condemn us. We don't need to commit sins against other laws to be condemned, and yet we have. And in everything that every one of us has done outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've earned your righteous judgment. 
But Father God, praise be to you. Praise be to your Son who came, who lived, who died and rose for us so that we can be in right relationship with you and fully forgiven. But God, have mercy on us who claim the name of Christ and who have been living with regular, unrepentant sins of the tongue that cut down others, others that prop up ourselves and even, Lord, might seek to then teach or speak to others hypocritically about what the Word of God would say in, in whatever setting. Father God, I pray that you would be merciful to us as you have promised to do, as you, as you are the covenant-keeping God who continually lavishes love and grace on us. Would you give to us the grace of repentance, of faith in Jesus' finished work, and therefore into obedient faith that will live in accordance with your words about what words we ought to be using. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him to guide us in this, the direction our lives should take. And it is in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen.